So I'm always recommended to teachers that when you're going to look at home study, what you're going to validate or what you're going to assess with kids is their own assessment of how they felt about what they did. What were the behaviors they used to get it done? And then what was the thinking processes that they used to accomplish what they accomplished? That was Dr. Richard Cash, author of Self-Regulation in the Classroom, helping students learn how to learn. Welcome to the Education Futures Podcast. I'm John Moravec. Self-Regulation in the Classroom is our focus for this episode. That is, we are focusing on how students manage, coordinate, and adapt how they think, feel, and behave to become successful. Social and emotional challenges in kids have been receiving a lot of attention lately. Students who struggle with self-management often do poorly in school. So we wanted to learn more about this. My wife Kelly and I met up with Dr. Richard Cash, who's a gifted and talented expert, and he's also the author of Self-Regulation in the Classroom, Helping Students Learn How to Learn, and we met up at a Minneapolis wine bar. Richard frames self-regulation as ABC, that is affect, which is about how you feel, behavior, what you do, and cognition, how you think. So we wanted to dive deeper on that, and we wanted to know, okay, what really is self-regulation in the classroom? What does a classroom look like when you see self-regulated learning happen? And what experiences did Richard have that we can learn from? Here's our interview. My name is Richard Cash, and I um, have my background actually is kind of a little interesting. I didn't start off my career uh, in education. I actually started off in theater. Um, so you'll see a lot of jazz hands whenever I'm teaching or presenting. I'm, I'm always in that kind of mode of keeping people interested. Um, I... Uh, found that I couldn't do much with my degree in theater, so I had to come up with a new way to reinvent myself. So my siblings are all teachers, so I thought, hey, I'll try that. So I went into teaching and I, I uh, landed in a school for gifted kids and uh, really fell in love with that, uh, that, that aspect of teaching. Um, it was really my, it was very much like uh, baptism by volcano, uh, baptism by lava, because I, I was thrown in the deep end of the pool with these kids that were much smarter than me. I had no understanding of how they could think the way they were thinking. So I had to go back to school uh, to learn more about these kids that were called gifted. Had some great teacher mentors along the way as well and uh, spent uh, about 15 years as a classroom teacher, loved it, and then uh, worked as a uh, curriculum coordinator for the School for Gifted Kids and then uh, went on and finished my doctorate degree in educational leadership uh, and I became the director of gifted programs for the Bloomington, Minnesota Public Schools where I spent the remaining 15 years of my career and now I'm a private consultant so I work with uh, school districts all over the world. What is self-regulation in the classroom? Have you mm. been writing about it? Yeah. And for me, I'm, my, my background is in educational policy, so this is a very new topic to me. Yeah, I, you know, I, I came across this idea when I started a program for gifted kids in Bloomington. And these, these were highly profoundly gifted kids and found out that, that we were having some issues with them socially and emotionally in the classrooms. And I would go in and I would do observations to find out, you know, what's, what, what is the big deal? What, 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 what are we running into? What are the problems that we're running into? And what 
I recognized is not that these kids aren't smart. It was that they didn't know how to manage themselves in the classroom. I was also at that time doing some work with an Indian reservation in northern Minnesota and was finding that with this high poverty group I was in I was also recognizing the same exact problems with kids in poverty. They didn't know how to manage themselves in school. So I started looking into this concept of, you know, self-management, which led me to the, the term self-regulation. And self-regulation basically is our ability to manage, coordinate, and adapt how we think, feel, and behave to become successful. And so that, I, as I studied it, as I read into it, as I started working with kids on this, what I recognized is that that affect, behavior and cognition, or what I call the ABCs of self-regulation, how we feel about a situation, what we do within that situation, and our thinking process within that situation is what is going to make us successful or unsuccessful. So basically, that's what self-regulation is. How do kids develop an awareness of their ABCs? How do they then manage them? How do they adjust them and adapt them? And then how do they sit back and reflect on them to say, what did I do well? What was I feeling? What was I thinking? And so forth. What does a classroom look like where you see self-regulated learning happening? Mm. Uh, you, it, it depends on what level you're looking at because, um, and, and kind of the, the, the students within the classroom, kind of the, the socioeconomic status and so forth. But I'll tell you that a well-regulated classroom, kids start learning responsibility early where the teacher is not taking over control of the classroom, where the teacher starts to release that responsibility over to the students. And you've probably heard the, you've probably heard the, the idea of the gradual release of responsibility popularized by Fisher and Frey. Well, this is even more so than that. It's, it's, it's where kids are starting to become aware on a routine basis of the ABCs, affect, behavior, and cognition, that the teacher has well delineated uh, expectations, not rules, norms, or what I call them, uh, that that there are well derived behavioral aspects that kids are asked to reflect on a routine basis every 10 to 15 minutes within a class that te that teachers are asking students to stop and reflect and think. Uh, so it's an environmental shift more than it is just a an instructional shift. In your book, Self-Regulation in the Classroom, we really loved the Passion Project. Mm. Can you share a bit about, the, about that and how it relates to the, the concept? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, actually that, that idea came from my work with a little first grader that I was, when I was teaching in first grade. This little guy was so passionate about how the sun creates energy and how the sun, uh, you know, heats and warms the planet and all this stuff. And he was so overly excited about it that I realized that what I was teaching in the solar system unit at that time was below his needs. But I also realized that he needed to learn how to manage himself because he was always like thinking about his passion and not thinking about what I wanted him to think about. So what I decided was I was going to give him that outlet to do that thing called a passion project 
And the idea is that a kid comes up with an idea of what they're really passionate about. And the idea is to, to research it of how they got interested in it, why they're interested in it, what are the different uh, different arrays that 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 idea or that 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 passion leads to, what are careers that could possibly come out of it. However, I didn't want a kid to tell others about their passion, to tell them absolutely everything about it. Because if you tell me everything about it, then I don't care about it. I, I don't want to go do it. So the passion project, what I think is a critical component here is that you give someone just enough information that they want to be interested in it. So you don't tell them everything, you just give them enough. And what I find is that kids that learn to do that, that actually go off on their passions, something they're deeply interested in, they automatically start to manage themselves. That they're automatically doing that ABC. They're automatically, they already feel good about the topic. So they're committing themselves to the process of getting it done. They're thinking deeply about their passions. So it's a format to help kids take on that responsibility of the learning process. So technology, this can't be the Education Futures podcast without <laughs> a little technology in it. Right. So are there any purposive uses of technologies to meet the vision of a self-regulated classroom? You know, I'm, I, I come out of that era um, prior to technology. Uh, the grandest technology we had when I was in high school was, you know, a calculator. Um, and technology is, is so far advanced now today than, than ever before in human history. And, and I think that there are pros and cons to technology. Uh, the pros are that they make things easier, that we can access information more rapidly and so forth. But, but I think the, the, the drawback on technology is that it has created a whole world of distraction. That kids are constantly being distracted by technologies. And as much as technology gives us, it also takes away from us. So kids believe that anything that's worth learning is only what they can find on their cell phone. Uh, they they don't realize that the technology is a tool, that it's it's not a toy, it's a tool. And what I get really frustrated by is when I'm working with school districts and they do these one-to-one -one pro, uh, programs where every kid has a laptop or an iPad or iBook or whatever they're called, and they are spending all of the time messing around with the technology and never getting to the instruction. Same with, with interactive whiteboards. I've been in classrooms where the interactive whiteboard breaks down or something goes wrong with it and the teacher spends 20 to 30 minutes trying to boot it back up when old technology of just let me draw it on a piece of paper could work more efficiently. So when I talk about technology, I talk about technology and how to teach kids to be responsible with technology. Uh, the arguments of having cell phones in a classroom or not having them in a classroom. You know what? It doesn't matter. If you're not teaching something that's of interest or interesting or worth listening to or has value to the student, they're going to use their technology to tune you out. So technology does have a place in our classrooms, but I think what we've really got to focus on is on how to teach kids how to use it respectfully and to really advance their thinking process. Because the computer and technology can't think for you. It will only do what you tell it to do. So to continue on with that, that piece there then, 
So maybe there's a misuse of technology, but is there a use of technology that can help augment um, students to develop interest to mm. help develop that uh, affective part? You know, um, one of the teachers that I worked with had a really great way of, of using technology. Um, she was trying to teach kids about different concepts that were being embedded within um, the studies. So let me just pick a social studies uh, unit because this was on um, uh, the Civil War, um, the concept of the house divided uh, or brother against brother. And what the kids were asked to do was take a concept or take an idea that was happening within the context of the Civil War, such as a house divided or conflict or uh, brother versus brother, or take those ideas that were coming out of the study of the Civil War and then go take a picture of something in their world that capsulized it into what our kids call memes, where it was a one picture that could tell a thousand words, um, and that capsulized that idea, that concept to them. And then the kid came in and suggested how that I, how their image represented those particular concepts within the study. That's that's a nice way to integrate the technology. Um, you know, definitely using the, the internet for research, but, uh, you know, that's, that's just so passe right now because everybody uses the internet for research. And, but are you finding information that's valid? Are you finding information that's credible? Or are you just finding information that somebody wrote in a blog post? So I think that there are ways that we can use the technology then to ask kids to, uh, you know, look at the source and then really unpack that source and dig through that source and really investigate where does it really come from? Is it truth or is it, you know, X-file information? So I, I, I think that, that we could utilize the technology in multiple ways, but we gotta be very careful that we're not using it as just really expensive paper and pencil. So on to homework. Oh, homework. So we have homework. My favorite subject you of all time. You talk about homework in mm. your book. You suggest home study. Mm -hmm. um, what's the difference? <laughs> well, there's little to no evidence that shows that homework has any impact on achievement in the elementary level. It has a negligible effect at middle school, and it has an effect in high school when the home period is below 90 minutes. So why do we do it? Well, if you read Benedict Carey's How We Learn, you'll find out that we do a lot of stuff in education that's based on mythologies. Homework was utilized in, in the past for kids to memorize information because they had to, because the, there wasn't access to information like we have now. So the old idea of homework was about memorizing for you to come back to school with it and then utilize it for the test. We don't need that anymore. And it was it, that, that, that simplistic view of homework has become a, a cancer, I believe, in education that, that used properly, what I call home study, is actually something that can benefit kids. Because if you look at students who drop out within the first two years of college, the major reason kids drop out of college within the first two years is they don't know how to study.
and manage their time. So if we teach kids early, I'm saying as early as kindergarten, teach them how to manage their time. So at kindergarten, you have five to 10 minutes to plan time that you're gonna plan it at every day at four o'clock, you're gonna sit down with a book and you're gonna read that book for five minutes. Or you're gonna sit down with a friend and you're gonna talk to a friend about something you learned today. The process of teaching kids how to study is critical to their success post high school as well as in high school. So I think that we need to reshape that idea of homework into home study. And when we, I always uh, say, well, yeah, kids do need to practice because practicing is a really important process, especially in mathematics. However, you gotta liken practice to like practicing basketball. So if I go to basketball practice after school and the coach says to me, Cash, you need to work on your free throws. So here's your homework. You're gonna go home and you're gonna practice your free throws and I want you to do at minimum 10 of them and practice those 10 free throws. Well, how do I know that my practice when I go home is efficient or effective? Well, I know it because the ball went in the hoop or didn't go in the hoop. So that's how I know it happened. So there's this thing called immediate feedback that kids need during practice. So if I'm doing math practice at home and I have no immediate feedback, I'm gonna, could possibly do it wrong or I could inadvertently do it right and not know I did it right, but I got the right answer because I got the answer key. But how did I get it right? I don't really know. I guessed at it. Well, I don't know that I got it right until maybe the next day. So that would be like blindfolding that kid playing basketball. That standing on the, on the driveway, you blindfold them and you say, shoot 10 shots and I'll tell you tomorrow which ones you got in. It doesn't work that way. For practice to be proficient and then perfect itself, it has to have immediate feedback. So teachers are gonna have to figure out ways to make that feedback immediate. So I don't value grading homework because that's like grading my baskets when I have a, when I have a blindfold on. So I'm always recommended to teachers that when you're gonna look at home study, what you're gonna validate or what you're going to assess with kids is their own assessment of how they felt about what they did. What were the behaviors they used to get it done? And then what was the thinking processes that they used to accomplish what they accomplished? So in the, in the introduction to your book, you're a little, you're a little rough on millennials. <laughs> you said that they have a relentless need for stimulation and a shortened attention span. So I was just at a, at a conference in Finland and there were a bunch of people from the Summerhill School. And they said, oh, boredom. Yeah. That was the best part of school. <laughs> for the Summerhill experience, I was sure. like, you know, this really got me thinking though. Sure. So what about the, the power of boredom? Or the power of boredom for enabling reflection. I don't mean to do it like in the negative way that we sure. say like melancholia or yeah. ennui, but the real true boredom, boredom. that right. causes you to, to right. think a little bit. Well, here, here's what you have to understand about boredom. Boredom is a self-induced state. It's a feeling and it's relative. All of our feelings are relatives. That Our feelings are the way we emote, the way we read out our emotions. 
So a feeling is managed. A feeling is controlled. A feeling is something that I I am responsible for, not anyone else. So when a kid comes to me and says, I'm bored, I say, wow, well, boredom, you know, boredom is a self-induced state. You created your boredom. Now, what are you going to do with your boredom? And I think what those people are saying about boredom was, was a, a critical factor for them. It's because it allowed them to then shift and change. Kids who are what are called preventers, they use preventative strategies, are kids that shame and blame others. They make it everybody else's fault that they didn't do well on a test or that they're bored or that they are not engaged in the learning process. They're making it everybody else's fault. Those are called preventers. Well, we want to start developing what are called promoters, kids that learn how to cope with situations. So if someone is bored, you know what the number one reason why someone's bored? Do you know what it is? I have no idea. The number one reason why people are bored is because they're not interested in it. So if a kid says to me, I'm bored, I say, what about this is not interesting to you? Because that's usually the case, is a kid's not interested in it. Well, if they're not interested, then they have to start taking responsibility of learning how to create the interest, divert their attention, uh, uh, you know, uh, come up with a new idea or advocate for themselves. So I say, I, I give the three A's of, uh, of, of uh, changing your boredom from avoid it. You know, so avoid boring situations. Well, kids can't avoid school. So sometimes school is boring. Well, what are you going to do about it? Well, then you advocate for yourself. So the other A is advocate for yourself. What are you going to do to advocate for yourself? Go to the teacher and say, you know, this, this is something that I'm interested in when we're talking about mathematics, I'd like to see how it fits within literature. I'd like to see how it fits within, you know, what I'm interested in, in dogs, whatever. And then the other one is to um, to accommodate. And so sometimes you just have to just suck it up. And you just have to say, you know what, I just got to get through this lesson. I just have to get through it because not everything in life is highly interesting. I don't like doing my taxes. They are boring, but I still have to do them. So you just have to suck it up. So I just have to accommodate it and just go on with it. So boredom does, we have to get kids to own it rather than give it away, give their power away. They got to take it back and say, you know, I own this. What am I going to do with this? Thank you very much. Thank you. We got a little behind in a production schedule. The past month has been a real challenge. The most difficult part, of course, was the U.S. presidential election and coming to the acceptance of the outcomes. I believe it can be argued that nothing is more political than education. And so it came as a big shock to me when Donald Trump and a basket of extreme right-wingers were elected to office. My first reaction is one of denial. Maybe I somehow crossed over into Star Trek's mirror universe. You know, the one where Spock has an evil goatee, where everybody's aggressive, they're mistrustful, and opportunistic. The universe that reflected the worst of what we could become as individuals and as a society. Surely I thought. The outcome of this would not be possible in my America. But it did. And that really upset me. How could this have happened? Why didn't young people who should care about the future come out to vote? What did I do wrong? I was angry and frustrated, and especially at myself for not doing better. 
The election results dropped like an anvil. The presidency has been taken over by a narcissist. Truly scary people were elected to Congress. And all these people will prove Trump's picks for the Supreme Court. There is no room to bargain. This power grab will be swift and absolute. And this makes me sad. It's not about having my people elected office or having this my way. This is about decades of progress that we've accomplished and the fundamental future of our country. I need to face the reality that the dream of American democracy is dead, or at least on hold for a while, in favor of an oligarchy. Donald Trump is appointing the wealthiest cabinet in history. His nominee for the Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, is a billionaire who is hell-bent on dismantling public schools. She supports programs that advocate for child labor as service to God. This is not 21st century education. This is a rollback to the 19th century. It's going to be rough for at least the next four years, especially for those of us that work in our public schools. I want to be able to say, hey, it's going to be okay. But I'm having a hard time convincing myself. The territory we're entering is truly unknown, and not in a good way. In the hands of a narcissist, who indignantly chooses to go to war against a Broadway musical and a late-night entertainment program instead of working on real issues, I question how bad this real-life episode of Celebrity Apprentice will get. We'll put up a good fight. We'll continue to create quality research. We'll continue to have bold conversations. We'll continue to share what we've learned. We'll advocate for all kids. And we're going to work twice as hard to ensure better education futures for all. As Senator Paul Wellstone said, we all do better when we all do better. This episode of the Education Futures podcast is made possible through the support of our wonderful listeners, especially the folks who write to us, who provide feedback, insights, and ideas for future episodes. We would like to thank Richard Cash's publisher, Free Spirit Publishing, for providing copies of his books for our listeners and the book discussion participants. If you'd like to listen to more, you should visit the Education Futures podcast Patreon page. By chipping in with a monthly donation, you'll get access to the complete interviews we've recorded, including interesting bits that did not make the final cut in this program. As more media become available, we'll make them available too. Go to educationfutures.com podcast and click on support to learn more. You can learn more about the series at educationfutures.com podcast. If you'd like to chat with us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at edfutures and on Facebook at educationfutures. Email us your stories. Keeping conversations about the future of education going depends on you. We'd love for you to share your thoughts, stories, opinions, and ideas for use in upcoming podcasts. Please email me at john at educationfutures and visit us at educationfutures.com to engage in the discussion involving learning and the future of education. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at Morvec. Thank you, and we look forward to continuing the conversation with you in our upcoming podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>